Hey Crypt Keepers, I want to tell you about our exciting new affiliation with Parabox. Parabox is a t-shirt subscription box with a twist. Each month you will receive a new paranormal soft style tee and info card about that month's theme. The shirt and card will contain clues to finding a hidden password for use on their website. You'll also find clues to next month's theme. Correct entries get entered in a raffle for free gear. The shirts are unique. They're pretty dope with designs about all your favorite paranormal stuff like Black Eyed Kids, Bigfoot, Nazca Lines, and a really cool Battle of Los Angeles tee. That's one I'm hoping I will get here sometime soon. The designs are silk screened onto a soft style tee that's super comfortable. From the moment you open your pair box, you'll be so engrossed by the t-shirt, you'll forget there's a puzzle built into it. That's right, each shirt contains a secret password. It can be in the form of codes, ciphers, riddles, numbers, images, or other hidden gems. Have fun exploring the design and putting the pieces together to figure out where to go next. Get your exclusive link in the show notes, and we get a little kickback when you sign up for the box, so you can support the show while getting cool swag with mysteries in the process. I've always believed that there were several planes of existence. And we as human beings inhabit only one. What happened to you guys last night anyway? I was attacked. Is this the first time something like this has ever happened? No. Things have come to me. In the night. Why do I see and feel these things? It's my decision. What, to stay sick? To stay alive. Good evening, Crypt Keepers, and welcome to Cryptique. I'm joined, as always, by a man who has enough to do without making your death look like an accident. Ryan, what's up? <laughs> Not a whole lot. Not a whole lot. You're making me think of a radio thing I was listening to this morning about uh, a certain Russian president. Oh. And wondering how long the CEO of Wagner Group, or whatever that mercenary group is called, will last. Talking about that there are an awful lot of people who've like said things that were just insulting to President Putin. Mm-hmm. Who wound up accidentally falling off their balcony or whatever? Oh yeah, I mean that's common practice, right? In any kind of presidential dictatorship. <laughs> Definitely not the position of cryptic, right? We don't, uh, we don't, we don't push critics off balconies, do we? Not yet. Am I? I'm not allowed to do that yet. <laughs> no, no. It is funny though that like Xi Jinping calls himself president too. It's like, come on, man. You can call yourself whatever you want, but you're still just a turd dressed up in a tuxedo. (laughs) It's ridiculous. I'm the president. My people love me. Well, guess what? We have presidents here, and nobody likes any of them. So I guess guess it sounds better than dictator, but whatever. All right. Well, we got a lot to get into tonight. Do you want to tell them what they need to know to get us started? Sure. Uh, you guys all know the drill. Please like, subscribe, you know, interact with us however you can, depending on what platform you're listening to us on. 
share us with friends and family because it's the best and most organic way for us to grow. It's, you know, it's a lot better than trying to rely on algorithms or AI. And you check us out on social media. You can find us on TikTok at cryptique underscore podcast and YouTube at cryptique podcast. You can check out Parabox, which has a lot of great t-shirt designs. As always, their link is in the show notes and they're just a great friend of the show. And you can check out our stuff, not to compete, at crypticpodcaststore.com. But yeah, tell us tell us the true story of the entity. The investigation on August 22nd, 1974 in Culver City, California was to be like any other one Dr. Barry Taff had done. Barry Taff. For some reason I like that name a lot. <laughs> now that I say it out loud. Believing that this would be an open and shut case, they showed up at Doris Bither's house, not expecting much. Little did they know this would be one of the biggest cases in the annals of paranormal history. Dr. Barry Taff and his associate Carrie Gaynor were overheard talking about the paranormal by a woman in a local bookstore. The woman approached the two men and told them that her house was haunted. She gave Carrie some details of the haunting, after which he told her he would discuss it with his associate. Dr. Taff and Carrie arrived at the Culver City home on August 22, 1974. Doris, a petite woman in her 30s, greeted them. Doris lived in the small home with her six-year-old daughter and her three sons, aged 10, 13, and 16. The house at the time was in shambles. Squalid living conditions and a tumultuous relationship between the mother and sons is what the investigative team observed upon their first visit. The investigators reported a feeling of overpressure in the ears while being inside the home. According to Taft, the house was twice condemned by the city. From what is known, Doris suffered abuse from her parents as well as had several abusive relationships with men. Since I had put these notes together, uh, I wanted to point out a couple things that I learned while listening to some other podcasts on the topic. One is like we said she was raised by abusive parents but they were also allegedly both really bad alcoholics and apparently as a a kid I think about 13 she was basically kicked out for doing seances and paranormal stuff her parents even though they were alcoholics and abusive you know they were one of these families that you know we talk about where they try and make everything look like it's good and they're kind of strict and they're they look upstanding in the community and stuff like that but behind closed doors they're kind of you know pos so just wanted to slide that in i didn't have a chance to add it into the notes i wanted to make sure we got that out there so go ahead there was obvious tension between the three young boys and the mother the psychodynamics of the home were extremely negative it seems that the boys, especially the eldest, would harbor some dark and resentful feelings towards their mother. The unconscious mind that is troubled by a physically or verbally abusive environment and negative upbringing is like a lightning rod to paranormal activities attracting poltergeist activity or psychosomatically creating it. So this is kind of like the idea that, well, not really an idea. It's It seems to be true that teenagers create that kind of activity. Absolutely. Right? You, yeah, you'll find out. Mine are in the process of creating it right now. (laughs) Doris claimed that spirits would physically attack her. The reports range from Doris walking around her home and bumping into the ghosts to actual spectral rape. 
Of course, Taff and Gaynor were skeptical of all of this. Ghost apparitions are a hard thing to prove and collect evidence for from a scientific perspective. Ghostly rape is even harder to believe. It was not until they saw the bruises in her inner thighs and all over her body, as well as people outside the family corroborating by testifying that they had also seen apparitions, that both investigators started to take heed as to what Doris was saying. And when we're looking at this, we say ghostly rape is even harder to believe, but we've done episodes on incubi and succubi. And I think that in most of the cases, the victim, if you will, of the ghost or or demon or whatever you want to call it, was kind of a willing participant. Like they were seduced or they had no control over their body, like they were in a sleep paralysis state or something. But in this case, she is saying that they are physically raping her just like it was a human. It's just that you can't see them. So that's pretty scary. But, you know, they when they reference ghostly rape, it's like, yeah, that is hard to believe. But it's also been talked about throughout time. So it's not that hard. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. It's been talked about so much. It's not, unfortunately, that surprising. Yeah. It's not the most outlandish thing I've heard. Like, I would be really skeptical if somebody was reporting, like, ghostly tweets. <laughs> like, the ghost was, like, you know, holding their phone in front of their face at night to unlock it and, like, tweeting offensive things from their account. Like, that would be weird. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of historical reports of this kind of thing happening, unfortunately. So, what did they look like? We'll find out after a quick break. back crypt keepers doors claim that the ghosts were of asian men the children also saw these beings the visions were so frequent that the children dubbed one of the more prominent ghosts as mr who's it which may be another nickname you're gonna get the claim of rape by these beings is one of the most interesting aspects of the case Doris Bither reported that two of the smaller beings would hold her down, while the biggest or tallest one of them would rape her. Doris's eldest son would admit to seeing his mother being tossed around the room. In one instance, he tried to intervene and was thrown across the room by the unseen force. How can you prove spectral rape? The team decided to set up shop and brought in high-speed cameras and photographers as well as other investigators to help capture something on tape. In a famous report, all investigators and equipment, as well as Doris, were in the small bedroom, cramped. And now we're talking about like 30 people. And even if you have a big bedroom, that's asshole to elbow. So, cramped and anxious to see any paranormal activities, they decided to have Doris conjure up the beings by having her call them. Doris began swearing and yelling at the spirits while, shockingly, lights started manifesting around the room. 
As Doris kept provoking the beans, a greenish mist started to form in a corner, as if it was coiling. The green mist started swirling and growing. Within seconds, the form of a man's upper torso started to become visible in the mist. They reported seeing a very large and heavily muscled entity. The torso of the being did not show facial details. From what they gathered, this was a male entity. And investigators soon fainted after seeing this. You know what I say? Boom, you're off the team. <laughs> if you can't if you can't handle seeing a ghost, you shouldn't be a paranormal investigator. <laughs> Probably. No matter how many high-speed cameras were set up to capture this, none of this ever came out on film. The pictures only show what appears to be a free-floating arc light in the middle of the room, as well as some light warps. The most famous and incredible of these photographs is the one that shows Doris sitting on a bed, investigators surrounding her, and the free-floating arc of light in the middle of the picture. So this is where I'm going to turn it over to you, and you can read through this uh, section here and comment on what they're talking about, maybe kind of dumb it down for those of us who aren't photographers. Okay. I'll do my best. What's incredible and equally unbelievable is that the arc of light appears smooth. <clears throat> Even though this is a room with corners, and one would expect bends in the arc as when someone uses a projector to display an image, and the image hits corners in a room. The photographic evidence produced by the team shows the arc of light floating above Doris Bither with no bends, even though behind it we see the room's corner. Dr. Taff also reported that the eldest son said that the activities intensified whenever he played certain music. Okay, so the bend? Mm-hmm. I just don't know what to think because they also talk about these free-floating orbs and... They're, the way they speak about them makes them sound like they're, you know, self-lit. But Okay. Yeah, so this image, she's sitting on the bed. She has her hand up kind of to the side of her face. Yeah. Almost like she's on a phone call, but she's clearly mm -hmm. just like sitting there with her hand in her on her head. The There are two arcs that I see. There's a, a lighter arc that seems closer at the top left, and then sort of in the middle, there's the arc over her. I mean, the explanation I would have if you're asking me to debunk that mm -hmm. is the, the top left one, the lighter one, looks like a reflection from inside the camera lens elements. Okay. So camera lens has multiple pieces of glass in it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, I mean, a lot of people who've just taken photos with like a, I feel like it's almost wrong to say a real camera with how good phone cameras have gotten. But if you use like a real, yeah. you know, SLR, SLR type camera at some point, you've probably found like, you know, if you look into a light source or something, you get these strange artifacts in the viewfinder. And that oftentimes can be a light source, like reflecting between some of those lens elements internally, which would explain why they're pretty faint and they're round despite coming near a, a corner. Yeah, but they're not perfectly round. No, no. Yeah, that's what I'm noticing about the other one. The first one looks like it pretty much is. I would say that's most likely a reflection of a lens element, but the one that's directly over her, the fact that it cuts off at one of the shadows, mm -hmm. 
is strange. And when it goes up, yeah, it's it kind of goes up sharply and then flattens out. It's not not perfectly round. It almost looks like it's following the wall, but it's not. You know, <clears throat> is this something that they could do to the film afterwards? Yeah, you can. I mean, it almost looks like they just took an eraser and ran it over a pencil yes. drawing. Yeah, yeah. If you you've probably seen at some point historic photographs where it looks like they've scratched writing into the corner of it. Mm-hmm. That's because back in the day they would have used like eight by ten film, or they would use glass plates, and you can scratch into or like rub off the film, like the emulsion, uh, okay. so that it doesn't develop, and then you're left with white streaks making whatever it is you want to make whether that's you know city of st louis fire department from 1880 or whatever as Mm -hmm. a lot of them would be labeled you know kind of like that that's the way they would do it so it's like part of the negative and part of the photos that you make from it um but yeah it's totally possible to mishandle negatives and come up with something like that or handle them the way you want to and falsify yeah yeah and that's almost what it looks like except Except the way it so neatly cuts off at, on the left at that shadow. Yeah, That's what it, makes me think it's not a reflection of an internal element, and it's it'd be hard to do that on a negative, because this was the 70s. Mm-hmm. So this might have been medium format film, which is you know a little bit bigger, but it's not you know, it's not an eight by ten sheet where it's gonna be easy to mark it up with your hand or with a tool or something like that. Gotcha. All right. And we're not saying that they, you know, fake these because it seems like they, after everything everybody had seen that, you know, they could have faked a dozen of them and it would have made sense, but it was just the one picture. But who knows? Yeah, I'm just... Also go to authenticity, you know, like uh, we, we were there for weeks and all we got was this one, but it's real. Right. All right. You want to keep telling us about the uh, yeah the certain music. music. So Black Sabbath and Uriah Heep were albums that were played. The songs that mention or were about devil worshiping is what seemed to upset the poltergeist or amp it up maybe. Just putting that out there. Asking the boy to play the songs in question, Dr. Taft did observe that the lights and orbs increased. The investigative team observed lights and poltergeist activity for about two and a half months. As time went by, the activity decreased. I wonder if maybe it just got used to the song, kind of tired of it. They needed like Poltergeist Spotify to discover some new stuff. It is important to point out a few factors in this case. Doris' addiction to alcohol and her being abusive and belligerent almost daily. Because of her refusal to deal with her own psychotic issues, it seems that her energy and the energy in her home manifested itself as a poltergeist phenomenon. We have to take into consideration that the paranormal activities were extremely powerful only when Doris was present in the home. Doris, almost always in a drunken stupor, seemed to be the center of it all. While intoxicated, Doris would attract the phenomena almost on cue. There were times when she was present with the team and was not under the influence of alcohol that the poltergeist did not manifest itself. When Doris' mind was clouded and her inhibitions minimized, her psychokinetic energy took over. And it could be that. And I'm just going to say, in my own opinion, occurring to me in the moment, Hmm. that when you are under the influence of something, your 
Like, your guard is down. Yeah, you're opened up. Right, so it could be more... I mean, it could be her, and it could also be that she's in a vulnerable state. Mm-hmm. And so she's attracting whatever this is to come back. Right. Well, maybe that's why it's hanging around. Yeah. It is not a far stretch of the imagination to say that there were some very concerning underlying themes in the case. Doris claimed that there were three entities attacking her. These entities controlled her life and to some extent oppressed her. It would not be a stretch from a psychological standpoint that these entities could have been a physical manifestation of the relationship Doris had with her own three sons. From the reports of Dr. Taff, we know that her relationship with her sons was not a Norman Rockwell painting. Doris had suffered abuse almost all her life. The fact that she abused alcohol and self-medicated to avoid the post-traumatic stress from her abuse could have had a metaphysical effect in her life. Doris could have been extremely psychic or sensitive. She could have had a great talent, but her own refusal to deal with her past abuse and the fact that she self-medicated and kept her mind clouded did not let her use that talent. Instead, because of her addiction and self-hate, she could have manifested this poltergeist as another way, besides alcohol, of attacking herself. Doris and her sons, especially the eldest, could have been psychic. It's well known that parents sometimes pass down their psychic abilities to their kids. If the parent was psychic and the kids were psychic, the tumultuous relationship in the home could have produced a staggering amount of psychokinetic energy. Enough energy to physically manifest poltergeist activity. The feelings that Doris kids could have had against her and her addiction can be represented in the Hephaestus syndrome. It's your boy. Hephaestus? <laughs> yeah, I don't even know if it's a male. I guess it is a male, okay. Hephaestus, being the Greek god of fire and metallurgy, was kicked off Mount Olympus by his abusive mother. Hephaestus held a very turbulent relationship with her. Chaos and love combined in a love-hate relationship, the same way Doris' sons could have had a relationship with Doris. A strong love-hate relationship fueled by past abuse, alcohol, and psychic abilities is a powerful concoction for poltergeist or psychokinetic energy. And that's so true. Could you imagine you have, you know, Doris, who could be a powerful psychic, I mean, literally could be a powerful psychic, that is they say that you know this self-abuse caused her to not be able to reach her full talents as a psychic but it seems like this is when her psychic ability or psychokinetic ability was unleashed so it's hard for me to say that yes she could have been a powerful psychic you know a mind reader a remote viewer or whatever when it's when she was drunk is when this stuff started happening so it's almost to me the opposite like she had to get drunk and become belligerent and become open and unprotected for this stuff to happen but if the same thing was happening with all her kids i can't imagine how i mean it must have been an absolute madhouse if you have, you know, three or four people that have this like ability, curve, yeah. whatever you want to call it. So, yeah, kind of both in this case, if if that is what's causing it. And I think a lot of psychics, you know, feel like it's a gift and a curse. So, all right, but could Doris have attracted the spirits to herself? Find out after a quick break.
Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Bither could have attracted three evil spirits into her life. She could have been abused by three influential men in her life, like a father, an uncle, grandfather, someone she trusted. The combination of her self-medicating and having psychic abilities as well as self-loathing could have made her into an attractive victim to malevolent forces. Post-traumatic stress syndrome and psychic abilities can have a great effect on a person. Someone that doesn't know about their abilities or is under the influence of a drug can have a great effect on their surrounding environment. After Doris left her Culver City home, the phenomenon ceased to exist in the house. Future residents of the house have not reported anything out of the ordinary. The house remains to this day ghost-free. I mean, this just kind of further points to this being you know attached to Doris and her family and really having nothing to do with the house. So Dr. Barry Taff reported that Doris Bither moved from Culver City to Carson, California, from Carson to San Bernardino, San Bernardino to Texas, and finally back to San Bernardino. While jumping around the two states, Doris reported that the phenomenon quote followed her and her family to every place they moved, feeding the notion that the poltergeist phenomenon was a manifestation of her unstable environment and mind. He also reports concerns about her psychological state after she reported that she was impregnated by the ghost. What would that make you? Like a, so one parent was a god and one parent was a human, you're a demigod. But if you're, one parent is human and one parent is spectral would that make you like a demi <laughs> spirit or a demi human demi ghost demi ghost with uh, living tendencies or something now when you see <clears throat> demi ghost all I can think about is uh, Patrick Swayze and Demi Moore so mm -hmm. medical tests showed her to not be pregnant but suffering from an ectopic or hysterical pregnancy and so an ectopic pregnancy is basically where, and I could be wrong, but it's where the egg does not get fertilized in the womb. Like it gets fertilized kind of outside of the womb and really can't get in, causing a, a pregnancy that just doesn't, you know, come to fruition. Yeah, I think it's when it's embedded in the uterine lining. I want to say something like that. I don't think it's ever come to fruition from an ectopic pregnancy, but could be wrong. You know, there's miracles every day. You just have to look for them. But, and then a hysterical pregnancy would be her believing that she's pregnant by this ghost when she's really not. Uh, never thought I'd say that before. So, uh, no one can say for sure what could have been going on with the family in that small Culver City house. Doris Bither's story is probably one of the most terrifying and well-documented paranormal accounts. The entity's real-life victim, Doris Bither, also known as Doris Donner and Doris McGowan, passed away at the age of 58 in 1999 from cardiopulmonary failure. While it is stated that her death was the result of multiple organ failure, the precise cause of such untimely organ failure was never medically determined. So, before we get on to the interview with Doris Bither's son, 
what do you think about what's going on so far are you buying any of it if you are what are you buying and what are you selling or giving away <laughs> I don't know man this is honestly making me think of an episode of Dead Files have you ever watched that show have I bitched about that show before um, I watched it once because one of our guys uh, Bill Bean that we did an interview with uh, I think Father Bill Bean uh, was on the show but that's okay. the only one I've watched yeah I don't like it really <laughs> I don't either it seems like it just seems like the most fake thing I can imagine. Uh, woman walks through, and she's... I was making fun of it yesterday. Like, me and Kim were driving somewhere, and I don't, I don't remember how it came up, but I just basically made a whole episode up, and I impersonated Amy, and I was like, you know, I see, I see that there's somebody that's died here, and they could really cause a problem for the living. And then that the other guy, the, the homicide detective, was like, you know, I looked at the records in this house. Mm-hmm. is like 100 years old. So there's a lot of people that have died in the area. And I bet it's one of those that's haunted. And then they draw the stupid sketch. And they're like, is this it? And she's like, yes. Yes, yeah. it was a werewolf on a unicycle coming out of a portal in the bedroom. That's exactly what I saw. But the people like that always seems like BS to me. But the people that call them out... Mm-hmm. actually seem either they're much better actors than the actual presenters mm-hmm. or they're actually afraid of something and a lot of the time they're describing having these like kind of tumultuous lives like we're talking about you know mm-hmm. they've just had a death in the family or somebody's ill and the family's moving into a house where they're all living together now to take care of somebody or yeah you know, whatever. There's some kind of drama going on that's like changed their living situation and kind of kicked up this activity. So I think I do believe that something real was going on, but I'm still undecided as to whether or not it was something that they were causing, mm-hmm. like through latent psychokinetic abilities, or if it was, you know, the the like lowering of their defenses by the use of substances, basically. Yeah, yeah. I think that's kind of a common theme in possession or anything like that, too, where they uh, are doing things that aren't healthy for themselves, and then these spirits say, "Oh, you don't, you don't like to, you know, have your wits about you. Well, why don't you let me take control for a while?" And right. I so I buy that there was activity. I don't think that there would be 30 people that would get together in a room and all say that they saw this if it didn't happen. Now, have I seen a large group of people become overwhelmed by a dust particle that floats in front of the camera? Yes, I have. I have seen grown men basically piss their pants when a dust particle floats through the IR <laughs> on you know an old Sony camera mm-hmm. but I don't think that they're making everything up I think it's very possible that it could be just poltergeist activity from them their angst and their anger and you know self-loathing is a, a huge thing in here too because you know if you if you hate yourself you don't really care what happens to yourself. And I think most of us have been, you know, in a depressed state or something like that where, you know, we did 
question our if other people needed us. We did question if people wanted us, you know, to actually hang around them or whatever. I think we've all experienced that, but most of us don't take it to, you know, getting wasted every night and, you know, screaming at our kids. The thought of her being repeatedly raped, as we'll get into with her son's interview, I do believe that, or, or I believe that she believes that based on the quotes we're going to hear. The thought I have is that somehow the end goal was possession. And for whatever reason, that never manifested as, as far as we know. And I think that Doris was sexually active with a lot of people during this time. I mean, I think I saw in one report during the time that Taff and Gaynor were investigating that she had at least three different boyfriends. And I mean, if you're having sex with human beings and you are being raped by ghost, the chance that you're being impregnated by the humans is greater than three to one that it's the ghost. You know what I mean? It's like, if you're having sex with humans, it's the humans that are getting you pregnant. You know, if you have an invisible baby, then we'll know it was the ghost. <laughs> it's pretty simple. <laughs> but yeah, so that's kind of where I stand. I mean, I believe a lot of it. Don't believe the pregnancy part at all. Um, but, you know, it could be a thing, too, where maybe she felt the investigators were kind of slipping away. Like they, you know, it seems like they collected all this evidence and, you know, they did this huge investigation and they had all these people and all this equipment and everything. And what did they do for her? Nothing. It was basically just collecting evidence. So imagine you're a cop and your job is to collect evidence and you collect all this evidence and it's clear that someone is guilty of this crime and the prosecutor's like well i'm not going to do it i'm not going to take this case i mean it's almost like what happened to her she was being you know attacked by things and then these people that were supposed to help her just kind of like well we took tons of pictures and we got this one so, do you have any final thoughts, or do you want to tell us about Doris Bither's son? Yeah, I think I'm good. I think we'll get into the interview. Okay. Brian Harris is the middle child of the three boys. It has been his longtime wish to speak out about the story. Doris McGowan, McGowan is her maiden name, came from an upper-middle-class family. As stable as many people think that might sound, Doris' parents ran a turbulent household. Both were alcoholics and were not suited to provide a well-rounded upbringing for a child. At the age of 10, Doris and her family moved to California from the Midwest. Details of Doris' childhood are not clearly known by her relatives. In her teen years, Doris had a major altercation with her family. Both her parents, an aunt and an uncle, had decided to disown Doris, and she was cut off from having contact with any of her family. As her family members began to die off, it was apparent that the abhorrent feeling they had towards her was great, as she learned that all the inheritance was given to her brother. With no money and being a single mother, Dora set out to make a life of her own. Alright, so, sorry, but before we uh, jump back in, it's also possible that 
if this gift or curse is passed on, maybe both her parents had it. Maybe her aunt and her uncle. And they hated her so much that they were kind of manifesting some of this. Like a tulpa that, you know, their hate was so great for her that this being or entity was sent, you know, either probably subconsciously by them to attack her. But if they had all this power too, it's not out of the question that, you know, they could have created a a thought form tulpa that went to attack her. So listen to our tulpas episode. It's a couple back. Go ahead. Throughout her life, Doris had several failed marriages and relationships. She had given birth to four children, all from different fathers. Being a single mother and trying to support four children was something more than Doris could handle. The Bither family grew up and grew up poor and under stressful environments. Brian Harris recalls the overall feelings of growing up in the Bither home. Alright, so Brian Harris, as portrayed by Jay. The overall feeling of everyday life was that of being isolated most of the time. Yeah, the house was small, but since we were so separated physically, you felt alone and isolated. The home had the living room and kitchen in the front part of the property, while the bedrooms were in a different section, in the back of the house. It's described as a, an L-shaped property, if that makes sense. Life for us was far from normal. Dr. Barry Taff wrote about how the Bither home was twice condemned by the city, squalid conditions, and always dark and closed off to the outside world. Mr. Harris continued, As far as the home being twice condemned by, by the city, that's all bullshit. The home was never condemned. It felt isolated being there, but that was because the house had built a large reputation for being haunted, and that the whole neighborhood was coming by. Prowlers, curious people, neighborhood kids would always come by, trying to see inside the haunted house. At school, I used to get teased a lot for living in the house. The home was never condemned by the city. Mr. Harris continued, What do you want to know? It was all true. Mr. Harris believed that the entities were drawn to the negative and frightened attitude the rest of the family members had, especially Doris. How did Doris's child, Brian, see the entities? Find out after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. And Brian Harris continues. It was never clear. When they would make themselves known, it was always like a fog. Like a human, but not quite. Yes, like a silhouette, just not clear, translucent and foggy. It was like a sculpture, like a chiseled body. Not a full figure, but at times we could see some of it. It's funny, the whole incident about them being Asian, that's not true. They did not have Asian features. They did not look Asian. The whole rape thing was real. My room was right next door to my mother's. I would hear the attacks happening, things being thrown, her screaming. Then she would come out of the bedroom and have all these bruises on her legs, her inner thighs, just like in the movie. There were times where we would see it happen 
in front of us. And I just want to jump in here that the trauma of seeing your mother being sexually attacked by anything, anyone, real, made up, spectral, physical, whatever, that's a lot of trauma. That's mm-hmm. something that would be really hard to deal with. But he continued. It was like if a man was standing in front of my mother and would start to beat her. Imagine a woman being beaten. You could see her being picked up and thrown around. Sounds, slaps, but there was no one there to actually do it. We all felt it too, pulling, biting, and scratching. We were all attacked. We did notice that when we would play certain songs, the spirits would become agitated. There's this song in the Uriah Heep album, Demons and Wizards, that talks about good versus evil. It's basically about the devil getting his ass kicked. Every time we played that, the spirits would become agitated. Final thoughts? I mean, he sounds totally believable. He's not, I don't think he's trying to, you know, be too outlandish with things. He doesn't talk about like every piece of furniture being levitated or something like that. Right, right. But it's also things that she could make up because you could fake being beat up. Um, You could certainly put bruises on your own thighs and stuff. So, I mean, that has to be looked at as well. But the fact that they, you know, he says they, meaning multiple children, you know, saw these attacks and saw portions of these entities manifest. Mm -hmm. But... I don't know. So you you kind of sticking with me then, like <sighs> believing most of it except for the pregnancy? Yeah, yeah, I think I buy it. And the story, like you're saying, it he's not trying to add anything too bizarre to it. Mm-hmm. There's nothing that like makes it less believable by having his account. And kind of yeah, more so, hearing him say that he like saw, like he could hear the sounds of her being struck. Yeah. And could see like her moving around because of it, but not, you know, saw nothing there. Yeah, I would have been really interested. In, and I know things were, you know, we know a lot more than we did in the early '70s. But I would have loved for a priest to have been among the people that were in that room. And it seems to me, and I, I'm. You know, there's a lot of people that claim to be paranormal experts. I don't know that there's really a, a paranormal expert out there, but it would seem like, oh, we're dealing with spirits. Well, I don't know. Maybe call a priest. That might help. Or, or yeah. you know, if the family was Jewish, calling a rabbi. Or if they were, um, you know, from whatever religion, you know that that religion's. Um, someone of stature in that religion I should say yeah I think there's a lot I don't know I, I wonder about that sometimes like is calling a priest necessarily the right thing to do like well uh, now if sorry but if you have four people maybe not but if you have 30 then yeah let's just go ahead and throw a priest <laughs> why not I just mean like I don't know that priests are prepared to deal with it you know 
Like, well, too bad. That's what they signed up for. Yeah, I mean, is that part of, like, the, the job description? Like, hey, you might occasionally have to do this stuff? Because I could imagine <laughs> some of, like, the really, like, gentle priests that I've known walking in and seeing, like, a woman getting slapped around and being like, God, Jesus! And <laughs> just running out. Well, I mean, it's worth a shot, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's worth a shot. But any, I'm just kind of pointing out that I've, you know, you're talking about earlier that that you've seen grown men like terrified over dust in a in a camera viewfinder, and I don't know, I don't know. I think you need the right kind of priest to be able to come for that kind of thing because they're just for the most part they're just people too. There's a few extraordinary ones that we've talked about before that are exorcists, but yeah, but you got to start somewhere. Yeah, you can't go. You know, you can't just like call the Vatican and be like, "Hey, um, we've got a lady who's being allegedly raped by entities. So, could you send Father Amorth over?" Yeah, you know, they're gonna be like, "Well, it's got to go through all the right channels." But I feel like if, hey, you know, when you have those thirty people in there, have a priest. Then, you know, the next Thursday that you're going over, he can have his badass priest friend come <laughs> I mean something he calls to, the bigger braver priest <laughs> yeah some of this has to be taken into account that this was what what did we say 1974 yeah so that would have been what when was 49 that? years ago yeah but when was the exorcist was the exorcist early 70s I think it was 72 wasn't it uh 73 so it would have come out literally right before these cases. Yep. Yep. That's always interesting. But indeed. Yeah. So take your uh, priest with you when you're going on paranormal adventures. <laughs> uh, it's my emotional support priest. <laughs> right. That it uh, followed her around. So, you know, it wasn't the house. I mean, it clearly wasn't the house because it didn't happen to anyone else there. But before we move on, there was, and they described her as like an 80-year-old, uh, they described her as Mexican, but it was an older woman who came and said, you need to get away from this house. There's a dark, disturbing evil in this house, and you cannot live here you will and apparently this she came at like two in the morning and just looked crazy as fuck and they're like whatever and then all this stuff started happening so that kind of throws a wrench into the works a little bit because if that's true she said this house now it's also possible that the family just thought it was the house too and this is just when things started so in any case, it's interesting. I haven't seen the Entity movie, but, you know, probably will at some point. You know, it came out in like 82, something like that, 84. And uh, it's still only available for rent on the Roku. So I don't feel good about paying, uh, renting a movie from 1982. So. <laughs> and some garage sales, find a VHS copy. Yeah. But that's all we've got for you tonight on the Entity Haunting. So what's next on tonight's agenda, Ryan? Who's who's the dude we're talking about? 
be right back. So what's next on tonight's agenda, Ryan? Who's who's the dude we're talking about? Oh God, I lost my place. Hold on. We are talking about Granger Taylor. Granger Taylor was quite an intriguing individual. Born back in 1948 in the beautiful land of British Columbia, Canada, Taylor possessed an exceptional set of mechanical skills that would make any tinkerer envious. He had this insatiable appetite for exploring the mysteries of the world, always seeking answers beyond what meets the eye. The story is truly out of this world. It encompasses ambition, eccentricity, and a burning desire to unravel the unknown. Kind of sounds like you. (laughs) Well, except for the ambition. Uh (laughs) Taylor's life journey took him on a quest like no other, and he left a lasting impression. People from all corners of the globe were captivated by his enigmatic existence and couldn't help but be drawn into the intrigue that surrounded him. But here's where it gets really interesting. Despite his incredible mechanical prowess and curiosity, Taylor mysteriously vanished from the face of the earth, leaving behind a trail of unanswered questions. And that is the crux of the mystery that continues to baffle us to this very day. So let's talk about his incredible talent for engineering and mechanics from his early days. Even as a young boy, he would lose track of time tinkering away in his backyard workshop, meticulously crafting intricate contraptions and breathing life into machines. The way he could take apart a gadget and put it back together with ease, sometimes making it work even better than before, was nothing short of wizardry. And it wasn't just about fixing things. Granger's creativity soared to new heights as he ventured into the realm of invention. His name became synonymous with innovation and brilliance. One thing I wanted, well, actually two things I wanted to point out. So we talk about his sheer brilliance. Mm -hmm. So there was a steam train that had been expired for many, many years. And many people had tried to fix it, many mechanics, and they're like, it's shot. It is scrap. It is worthless. Well... Granger didn't think so, and he went to work on it, and guess what? He got it working, and he built a track for it on his land where he would take kids around on little trips on this steam train, and they would just, it was just a track where, you know, a short track where they would go just forwards and backwards, but he took this thing that several mechanics were like, it's shot, it's just scrap, and made it work again, and this is just, this. it's not like... He was a a railroad mechanic or anything like that. He did this off of stuff that he found at the junkyard and made this thing work again. So that's pretty cool, right? But he he also found a Japanese Zero airplane that was scrapped and rebuilt that and made it fly. So that's pretty impressed now we're talking about a guy who's still young we're not talking about you know like a 40 50 year old dude we're talking about a young dude so that's pretty amazing in my mind it wasn't just taylor's mechanical genius that set him apart it was his unorthodox interest that made him a truly one-of-a-kind character 
Granger also had an insatiable appetite for all things mysterious and otherworldly. He was like a sponge, soaking up every tidbit of information he could find about UFOs, ancient civilizations, and the unexplained phenomena that make you question reality itself. His journey into the realms of the unknown led him to dive headfirst into books, articles, and anything else he could get his hands on that touched upon these subjects. It was as if he wanted to unravel the secrets of the universe piece by piece. And we will learn more from Jay after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Granger's fascination with the cosmos grew stronger as he ventured into adulthood. It was like a wildfire spreading and consuming his every thought. He started meticulously documenting his experiences and theories in a series of captivating journals. These journals became windows into his mind, revealing his deepest beliefs and unfiltered thoughts about alien communication and his very own encounters with beings from beyond our world. He could write late into the night. He delved into the realms that most would consider far-fetched, exploring the possibilities of alien contact and communication. But here's the thing about Taylor. He had an unwavering conviction in his beliefs. Those journals became a testament to his profound faith in something greater than ourselves, something beyond the limits of our earthly comprehension. Some saw Granger as a visionary, a trailblazer challenging the status quo of our understanding. Others dismissed him as an eccentric dreamer lost in a realm of fantasy. But no matter what, Granger's writings added an extra layer of intrigue to his persona. Granger's relentless pursuit of the unexplained realms of the cosmos led him to pen those captivating journals. In 1980, something extraordinary happened. Taylor, who was just 32 at the time, vanished without a trace. His disappearance was as bewildering as it was sudden, leaving behind a series of puzzling events and a myriad of unanswered questions. It took an unexpected turn. It seemed as if his fascination with extraterrestrial life had completely engulfed him. He began voicing audacious plans about embarking on an actual journey aboard a spacecraft, firmly believing he could catch a ride on an extraterrestrial vessel. Then, just before he vanished, Taylor left behind a strange note for his parents. This note, cryptic in its content, spoke of his intention to return in a few years and urged his parents not to search for him. Imagine the whirlwind of emotions his parents must have felt. Confusion, concern, and even a glimmer of hope that their son might eventually return. Which I can kind of get behind with the things that we talked about with this guy already. Like mm-hmm. steam engine that nobody can fix. He's like, yeah, sure. And then he does. He fixes it. Yeah, like as or a teenager. Puts, yeah, puts together a Japanese, you know, World War II fighter mm-hmm. and is able to make it fly again. Yeah. It's, it's like, amazing. well, shit, what if he's right? <laughs> what if he is going to catch a ride on a spaceship? I, I mean, it does bring that into question because... Yeah, I mean, he's already done things that people said there was no way he could do. Right. But even today, Taylor's disappearance remains an unsolved mystery. It's as though he dissolved into the ether, leaving behind only... 
<laughs> leaving behind only fragments of a puzzle that seem impossible to piece together. Theories abound and speculation is rife, but the truth is as elusive as ever. His outlandish plans about hitching a ride and the mysterious note he left to his parents. All these elements combine to create a story that's both fascinating and perplexing. His strange vanishing act propelled him into the realm of legend, and we are forever left with a haunting question of what happened to Granger Taylor. Okay, give us a couple quotes out of there. It's a short note. I can just read the whole thing. Yeah, the um, note is... Uh, I even found a scan of it. Yeah, it looks handwritten... Dear Mother and Father, I have gone away to walk aboard an alien spaceship. As reoccurring dreams assured a 42-month interstellar voyage to explore the vast universe, then return. I am leaving behind all my possessions to you as I will no longer as I will no longer will require the use of any. That is how it is written. Will no longer will. Please use the instructions in my will as a guide to help. Love, Granger. So that's very interesting and he definitely he once he believed something it was pretty hard to convince him the opposite and he seems you know deeply embedded in this thought that aliens are coming for him to take him I wish there was more context to that note because it seems like, yeah, just a dream. Like, why is a dream or reassuring dreams? Why are they convincing you so thoroughly that yeah. this is happening? Yeah, and he does seem like someone that would write a longer, more detailed note. But, you know, who's to say? Because he could have been... Now, he was described as a, as a genius and a mechanical genius. Mm -hmm. And most people, I, I think think of him as just a regular genius because of the way that he was able to uh, like he would do things like oh there's an engine in a boat hmm how can I put that in a truck and he would just figure it out mm -hmm. and you know just things that were odd projects to tackle were kind of his thing I guess it's important too to note that he built a fake spaceship out of some satellite dishes that I guess he found at a scrapyard or something. I, I assume they had to be, you know, quite large, but he basically took two and made a flying saucer, you know, with no engine or anything like that. Just a place for him to kick back and relax and put up all of his books on the paranormal and stuff like that. He basically had his own kind of library you know this was well before the internet and uh he would have like neighborhood kids would come in there and hang out and they would read books together and stuff like that and it was also said that he had quite a weed habit so he was getting high all the time uh could be looked at you know self-medication like you can be a genius and crazy too and it seems to happen a lot so well and i think that i've read before there's a high correlation between iq and like substance abuse mm -hmm. or addiction mm -hmm. you know not speculating on causes but yeah it wouldn't be that surprising if he was a genius in using something mind-altering because statistically that doesn't seem that unusual 
Well, we'll find out about the investigation into his disappearance after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. The search for Granger Taylor turned into a nationwide sensation. It was like a wildfire of curiosity spreading far and wide, capturing the attention and imagination of people everywhere, as we've stated repeatedly. The moment he vanished, countless theories and speculations began to emerge, each more intriguing than the last. Some clung to the belief that Granger had somehow managed to make his dreams of interstellar travel come true. They envisioned him soaring through the cosmos, leaving Earth far behind, embarking on an extraordinary adventure among the stars. It's a romantic notion of a man escaping the confines of our world to explore the vast unknown. But, of course, there were others who suspected darker possibilities. And in the note that he left, he said 42 months. Is that correct? I believe so. Yeah, that's what he said. So he says that he's going to be traveling around the cosmos at light speed. So 42 months of him traveling at light speed would basically mean that the amount of time that passed on Earth would be, you know, something into the hundreds of years. So if he's flying around out there for 42 months and he comes back, it's going to be like 180 years later on planet Earth. You're blowing my mind. If you believe all that stuff. And I'm not saying I do. I don't understand it deep enough to, you know, battle it one way or the other. But that's that's how it is supposed to shake out. And so they realized, you know, after they had kind of figured this out, that he wasn't coming back to see his brother and his mom and his dad. He was coming back to see their great, great, great grandkids and, you know, tell them, tell them the story. So that remains to be seen. And we've still got another like 140 years before we see if he, he comes back or not, but that's interesting. It is interesting. I hadn't even considered that as a possibility. So, uh, all right. So I asked, um, Google's Bard mm-hmm. that question because I don't know mm-hmm. how to calculate that. So what I asked it was how much time would pass on Earth if you were to leave Earth and travel near light speed for three and a half years? Because that's 42 months. Right. The amount, And it says the amount of time that would pass on Earth if you were to leave and travel near light speed for three and a half years depends on how close to the speed of light you were traveling. Hmm. Uh, if you're, tra- yeah, if you're traveling at 99% of the speed of light, then three and a half years on your ship would correspond to about 20 years on Earth. Uh, if you're traveling at 99.9% the speed of light, then your three and a half years would correspond to 100 years on Earth. Yeah, so there you so go. So essentially, yeah, the closer you get to the speed of light, the greater the time dilation effect becomes. Yeah, which I actually thought of as soon as I hit enter on that it's like well if you're yeah if you're traveling 
98% the speed of light. Whatever. It's, uh... Whatever. I know some of the math, actually, behind, like, how you would calculate it. <laughs> how you would, you know, calculate limits and things like that, but... Yeah, so, I mean, if they're traveling 99.99% the speed of light, it could be hundreds of years. If they haven't figured out a way to deal with time dilation. That's true, too. So Essentially, yeah. my understanding of time dilation, because I'm really interested in it, I know that they can observe it from space. Like, on the space station, they can tell that, like, their, you know, their clocks will get out of sync with ones on Earth because mm -hmm. time is passing a little bit differently in each place. Mm -hmm. And to me, the thing that makes most sense is to think of it as, like, the more pressure you exert against the fabric of time-space, so, like, just the, like, reality itself... Mm -hmm. the more time slows down. Gotcha. So that force can be like acceleration force, like you're just pushing your ship faster and faster. That's a force that can time that cause you know time to be the same for you, but to slow down everywhere else kind of relative to you. Or no, you slow down relative to everything else, I should say. Hmm. Right? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, that would be the theory. So essentially time is passing much slower for you. Hmm. It's speeding up everywhere else, right? You're gone for three and a half years. You come back, 20 years have passed. Yeah. But it can also be mass. Mm -hmm. Like the mass of a planet, you know, a larger planet is going to have a similar effect. If you were somehow able to live on a planet that had like just an immense amount of mass and gravity, it would have a similar effect. At least that's my understanding. Yeah. I don't know if anybody out there cares or if that helps anyone. <laughs> It sounds like a, a different episode, but... <laughs> <laughs> sounds like we need a guest to explain this. Right, part. yeah. So uh, there were also, you know, darker possibilities that were suspected. All right, so foul play and accidents were whispered in hushed tones, suggesting that something untoward had befallen our, you guessed it, enigmatic friend. The idea that Granger had met with a tragic end, sent shivers down the spines of those who followed his story. And this was nationwide. This was Canada, United States. This was a big deal. And then there were those who dared to entertain the notion that Granger had orchestrated his own disappearance. They proposed the idea of an elaborate ruse, a grand banishing act designed to leave everyone perplexed and guessing. These theories and speculations swirled in a whirlwind of uncertainty each one adding a layer of complexity to what was Granger Taylor. People debated, discussed, and dissected every scrap of information, desperate for a glimpse of the truth behind his disappearance. The search for Granger became a national obsession. From dreams of interstellar journeys to suspicions of foul play or stage disappearances, every possibility was on the table. It's been decades now since Granger vanished from our midst, and yet the mystery surrounding his fate remains shrouded in darkness. Time has marched on, but his story continues to weave its spell and leaves behind a powerful legacy that resonates with curiosity, ingenuity, and an unwavering thirst for the unknown. Well, let's just go into the possibilities. So he disappeared. Possibility one. He was actually picked up by aliens and is traveling the cosmos right now. All right, so he's traveling the cosmos. That's one. Number two is that he was picked up by a government agency. 
uh, Canada, United States, somewhere, and that's kind of the cover story they put behind it. It's like, oh, no, this crazy guy just thought he was, uh, you know, being contacted by aliens and stuff, and he just disappeared. Who knows where he went? He's probably in the woods somewhere. And then uh, there is the possibility that when this trip for Granger didn't come to fruition, that he ended his own life. Now, when we're talking about these, uh, the possibility that he ended his own life was put forth by a police officer who found a truck that was literally blown to bits in an area near Granger's house, uh, like a little mountain area or something. And he had a just an old brown truck that he used, you know, to carry his scrap around in and stuff like that. And uh, his brother thought it would be funny to paint it pink as a joke. So that was the joke. You know, Granger drove a pink truck and, you know, it was cute and funny and everybody loved it. But in this exploded truck, they did not find anything with pink paint. Mm. But the detective claims that they found the um, VIN number. At least that's what they call it in the United States. I I don't know what they call it in Canada. I I would assume it's still the VIN number. The little tag that's on your uh, dashboard that the cop can read when he comes over to, you know, check for matching registration and stuff like that, that that was blown out of the vehicle and stuck in a tree and that the VIN number matched what was on Granger's truck. Now, this cop also says that the blast would have been hot enough to burn off all the pink paint. So that's a you know a science question that I don't have the answer to. We don't know what kind. I mean, he could have used you know house paint, or we don't you know from the story. It's not like he took it to Mako and had it painted pink. You know, he just <laughs> thought he would be funny and probably you know, mixed some house paint or something and, and painted it. So it could melt off. I don't know. I don't know if that's, you know, a possibility or not. But so basically his investigation is sort of closed as far as they think that he ended his own life. And I did hear, um, I can't remember what the officer's name was, but was talking about how he had seen a box of dynamite on Granger's property previously because, you know, he had used dynamite to blow stumps up on their farm to clear land. So, but they don't know exactly how much was left in it, if it would have been enough to do this amount of damage to the car. Uh, that sort of thing. So your three choices are traveling the cosmos, basically scooped up by a government or some sort of agency that wants to use his you know, engineering prowess, or he killed himself. What do you put percentages on, on each of those theories? I know it's, it's super difficult because you I mean, all we know about this guy is that he is, you know, at least a mechanical genius, probably a real genius, and 
who knows about his mental, his real mental state. Yeah. Yeah, it's a big question. There could be uh, a fourth possibility, depending on how conspiratorial you are. Oh, go for it. He was tricked into going aboard a spaceship, and it was a government spaceship. Mm. Yeah. And it was you at, like, a an Earth-based ship. Right, and he just thought that they were aliens. And it was aliens, yeah. Him. So let's put that in with the government snatch. Yeah. I feel like... Um, I don't know, man. For some reason, I feel like the most likely is actually got picked up by something. Then snatched up by the government and then, you know, killed himself. In, you know, descending order of likelihood. Yeah. I'm I don't thinking, I don't know. I just for some reason I'm really convinced by this one. Yeah, I think I'm going one percent picked up by aliens, sixty percent that it was a government conspiracy of some sort, and ninety percent that he killed himself. No, uh thirty percent that he killed himself. His existence inspires me and probably you to push the boundaries of what we know and venture into uncharted territories of thought. Tell them what they need to know. Oh, you guys know the drill. Share us with somebody you like, share us with somebody you don't like, share us with anybody that you think might be interested. Like, subscribe, comment, whatever you can do on the particular platform you're using. Let us know what you think and what you'd like to hear next at crypticpodcast at gmail.com. You can look for us online at TikTok if you really want to, if you're a Zoomer and you have to. We're at cryptic underscore podcast. We're also on YouTube at cryptic podcast. And we are starting to hawk some of our own merch at crypticpodcaststore.com. Sounds good. That's all we've got for you tonight. We will be back with cruel World War II Japanese torture practices in the after hours. Good evening, Crypt Keepers. Thank mm-hmm. you.